I'm Adit Chakraborty and welcome back to The Business. Coming up, is the recession really all over or is there more still to come? We discuss conflict and reports over talk of economic recovery. Plus, as Cristiano Ronaldo becomes the world's most expensive footballer, we analyse the business of the beautiful game. And, is the feeling mutual? We look at the uncertain future for Britain's building societies. This is The Business from The Guardian. On board this week, Jill Train is the Guardian's banking boffin. How are you today, Jill? Extremely well, thank you. Phil Inman's our finance expert and last heard in this podcast talking about his love of frozen pizza. That's right, I've got more to say. <laughs> There's more pizza to come. <laughs> A delivery. And finally, our special guest this week is Stefan Szymanski, Professor of Economics at the City University's Cass Business School. Welcome, Stefan. Hi, Adisha. Pleasure to be with you. Stefan will be helping us make sense of football finances a little later. But we start this week with a confusion about green shoots. So far as we can say, the recession is over. Those are the words of Martin Will, the director of the influential think tank, the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. But hold on to your party hats and don't go popping the champagne just yet, because when it comes to the state of Britain's economic health, the situation is anything but clear. The CBI thinks that our economic recovery will be postponed until 2010 at the earliest. The Bank of England and the British Chambers of Commerce also play down hopes that we've turned the corner. Then it was the turn of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the IMF head, to play the role of party pooper in chief by warning that the worst is still to come. Philip, there's a real conflict here between what the economists say, the people look at the big picture, and what the business surveys tell us. What, why do you think that is? Um, because economists live in ivory towers and are slightly detached from what's going on. Um, oh, my we'll come to Stefan in a second. <laughs> <laughs> I know lots of people, <laughs> on the, my economist friends would, uh, would disagree with that. But I think that when you talk to businesses, you know, they still think it's pretty tough out there. And last time I was here, we were talking about the um, £1 pizzas in, uh, in Iceland. And I think ever since then, you've seen everyone copying the £1 pizza. If you go to Asda, you know, it's turned itself into a pound shop, you know, in effect. And I was in Tesco's just the other day and I bought four pizzas all for £1. Now, these were pizzas that would have cost £3.54 pounds last year, which tells you something about the profit margin on them. But, but the fact is, all these shops have got to turn themselves into pound shops. Otherwise, people won't go in them. And Phil, you're pioneering a new field, pizza economics. Um, Let's just go around the table and briefly get the views from you and the people that you talk to. Jill, you cover the banks. What are they saying? The banks are saying, look, we're not going to go bust anymore. That confidence is back. Please don't worry about taking your money. But what they are all saying is there's going to be a lot more bad debts to come. They gave loans at the top of the market that now can't be repaid. People are losing their jobs. They can't make their payments anymore. And that's where the big problem's coming next. OK, so possibly still more gloom to come. Definitely more gloom to come. Not possibly. But not Definitely. a huge forest fire like no, we saw last year. But if I'm going to get myself into a sort of convoluted argument, what we are seeing is that those banks that have got investment banking businesses, ironically, where this crisis started, you know, the people had done all those dodgy CDOs and all that kind of stuff, ironically... The investment banking businesses are now doing extraordinarily well, a point made by RBS and Barclays and HSBC. So, as always, it's never a straight game with two halves to preempt something that's coming later. To preempt the football, indeed, it could be. Okay. Stefan, a really good counterindicator for how the economy is going is the number of students who enroll in MBA courses because they tend to try and sit out the recession and go and do, go and get themselves an extra qualification or two. What are you seeing at your business school? 
Oh, we've definitely seen an increase in applications. In fact, not just on the MBA, but even on our MSc programs, we've seen increasing applications this year. So, And um, talking to colleagues in other business schools, it, it's a uniform picture. So there's no question that uh, we're enjoying that countercyclical boost. Having said that, I, I've, I've lived through these before, and this is not much different from, from the ones we've seen before. I wouldn't say it's more dramatic than the ones we've seen in the past. Okay. There's a political twist to all of this as well, though, isn't there? Because... Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling pretty much bet the, bet the house on the idea of there being some kind of recovery towards the end of this year. Um, whereas the Tories opposed the fiscal stimulus, they were huffy about interest rates cuts and they were huffy about the pound being devalued. What do you think the politics of this are likely to be, Jill? Well, obviously, we're coming up into a phase now where we're going to get a general election between now and, what, 12 months are we talking? You know, you can see why Alistair Darling wants there to be economic growth by the end of the year, because then he's got a chance of saying... Gordon and I actually did save the UK economy from something much worse. I think they are pretty much alone in thinking that there is... I mean, if you see the data this week, you know, in your introductory remarks, you talked about the the CBI. Clearly, they're much more cautious. But also, as the point Philip made, economists aren't always right either. But it doesn't feel, from our own experiences, does it, that things are getting better just yet? Well, the Treasury's certainly been pretty pretty cautious so far. If you look at what Darling's been saying, he's been talking about yes, I'm I'm confident, but I'm not I'm not overconfident. What, what do you make of those remarks, Phil? Well, his his problem is, and I think it's one he's going to keep with, is uh, is that he's betting that everything's going to come good. He obviously wants it to come good before the election, but he's also betting it's going to come good big time in the two subsequent years. So he doesn't have to say that he's going to make big cuts and. I think potentially he, you know, when you talk to a lot of senior Labour politicians, they think that they're going to be the happy party when it comes to election time. Britain is a great place. We're growing again. It's all going to get back on our feet. We did all the right things. We acted faster than other countries. And the Liberal Democrats and the Tories are going to be the gloomy parties. They're going to say Britain is bust. We're hopeless. We can't do anything. We're going nowhere. So vote for us. And, and I think Labour think that actually on that general general theme that they're going to get a lot of votes because people will want to go with the happy view. Stefan, you come in. Yeah, well, I, I mean, one of the things is I think that this is perhaps a UK phenomenon is that the I mean, this, this one of the indicators that people are talking about is the purchasing managers survey, which has gone positive for the first time for a while. And that's that's happened in the UK. We went into this first. We've had we had a big devaluation. Then the particularly continental Europe has gone into it later. They're suffering. We're actually starting to benefit a little bit from a little bit earlier than everybody else. The only point I was going to make is clearly what Philip was saying is that this is why we're getting these huge rows about public spending. Whose cuts are going to be biggest? Whose cuts aren't going to happen? And why the Tories are getting so agitated about the lack of information about that? So it, it ties in all together, doesn't it? But you know. Let's hope it is. I mean, you'd rather have the economic growth than not, surely. <laughs> Best story if there's a almighty crisis, though, isn't it? Of course it is. But from a personal point of view, it's probably more enjoyable to have the economic growth, right? Manchester United have confirmed they've accepted an £80 million bid for Cristiano Ronaldo from Real Madrid. The Spanish club has long been linked with Ronaldo and United say the player has again expressed his desire to leave, so they've given Real Madrid permission to talk to the player. They say they expect the matter to be concluded by the end of this month. That's the news that sent shockwaves around the football world and, many would argue, provided conclusive proof that the game has lost all touch with financial reality. Over the last 15 years, we've grown used to reading about the likes of Ronaldo and David Beckham and their telephone number salaries, as well as the very shakes, oligarchs and tycoons buying up premiership teams. 
It's all a long way since the days of jumpers for goalposts, local businessmen running their teams and indeed Ron Manager. So apparently Alex Ferguson has introduced a nookie ban, Ron. <laughs> I shouldn't think they need to in your day. <laughs> no, oh, no, it hadn't been invented when we were playing. Alex of it, hmm, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, I think George Best discovered it, wasn't it? Didn't he? <laughs> Stefan, explain this to me, you're the football expert. The world's in recession, and yet Real Madrid is spending 80 million quid for one player. How does that work? Well, one of the things about this is that, firstly, football is always in crisis. So whether we've got a recession or not, most of the football clubs are usually on the verge of going bankrupt. The second thing is, I think, that as far as um, Real Madrid is concerned, the, the, the main fact to bear in mind is that Barcelona won the Champions League this year. That cannot, in the political system in Spain, that cannot be allowed to continue. Real Madrid have to do something to re-establish their, uh, their claim to supremacy in Spain. And so money has to be found. And the, the, the new chairman, Florentino Perez, who was there until 2006, this is his second term in office, he is gambling that he can pull off the same trick as he as he did in his first term in office, which was to raise the revenues of the club substantially on the back of buying a team of superstars. You've just given a talk on the difference between real capitalism and football capitalism. What are those differences? Well, there's a lot in common between ordinary capitalism and football capitalism. So ordinary capitalism is about really having free movement of labour and free movement of capital, profit-maximising businesses, uh, engage in competition against each other in order to meet the needs of consumers. And if you fail, then you go bust and everything, you lose everything. The Football capitalism works in a very, very similar way. The big difference is, though, that um, we don't really allow the football clubs themselves to disappear when commercially they're bankrupt. Classic case would be Leeds United. They were a business that obviously invested far more money than they had, crazy business strategy, um, all falls apart, borrowed too much money. Normally in capitalism, they would then be liquidated, the ground would be sold off, and that would be the end of Leeds United Football Club. But what we do in football capitalism is say, well, no, the business, the the shareholders lose everything, but the football club remains, they can be relaunched, Um, the football ground cannot be sold off for um, use in other business purposes, it can't be rezoned. And therefore, in a sense, football capitalism is somewhat more benign than the ordinary capitalist model that where's, where we're seeing right now the very adverse consequences for people when ordinary capitalist businesses go bust. And a lot of free marketeers would say that football clubs therefore are encouraged to live beyond their limits, beyond their means. That's right. But I, I think the question you have to ask is, who are the victims? Who's actually losing out from football capitalism? It's uh, lots of money is spent. The fans get better and better players. And golly, the capitalists lose their shirts if they spend too much money. Well, that's tough luck. I'm, uh, I'm not, I don't feel any great sympathy for them. I don't know. What puzzles me is why people raise their hands in horror at this model and say this is a terrible thing and we're suffering badly. I, I don't see who's suffering. You could argue, for example, the Leeds United fans suffer from having their team go down two divisions. But bear in mind, somebody else, as a response to that, came up two divisions and their fans are very happy. Thank you very much. And so overall, the, the competitive nature of the league and the, and the, and the, and the amount of of entertainment provided for fans um, goes on. Fine, but explain this to me. Man U, over 600 million quid in debt, pay an interest of over 60 million pounds a year. I mean, how does that work? Well, what meant the Glazers bought Manchester United on the premise that the shareholders had actually undervalued the company. So they they bought the company for just under a billion pounds. 
And what they're demonstrating is that they can convert, they can pay for that with debt, pay off the debt through the cash flow of the club, probably within a decade. And then they're sat there with an asset which they own in full, having bought using other people's money. It's that it's I, I would I've compared this to really to a buy to let scheme. That's that's what this is. And of course, we're still they're still not out of the woods yet. They still owe a lot of money and they might fail. But um, my feeling is that the way they're going is they're actually going to succeed in this Phil are you a football fan I am what team I'm a gooner for my uh, sins so Arsenal I didn't grow up that far away so uh, I feel my allegiance is um, well Arsenal is, a, is, is both a huge team and a huge business and it's one of those sort of globalised premiership clubs it's got you know the Emirates Stadium it's got huge advertising it's got uh, you know high wage turnover all the rest of it do you think of your team as being a business or do you think of it with sort of the sepia-tinted memories of old? Um, well, I'd like to be able to go more often, and I, and I can't because, uh, because the price of the tickets is too high. And I think that's when, uh, when you talk about, you know, surely it's just football capitalism, you know, what does it matter? It's, it, then to me it does in that all you've got is a lot of Sky subscribers who, uh, who seem to, all they, the benefit that they get is it jacks up the price of everything, to the, of the players and the, and the tickets and there all the rest go, of it. There you go, Stefan. It does matter because it affects fans like Phil. Well, I remember the days in the 1980s where ticket prices were two or three pounds to get in, a, a frac- tiny fraction of what they are now. And actually the annual attendance at league football in this country was about half of what it is today. So despite phenomenal increase in prices, I'm not denying that, many, many more people are going to football than were going in the 1980s. And the obvious explanation for that is the extra money has got rid of hooliganism, has improved the quality of the stadium and has brought far better players into the league. And turns out that's actually what people want. OK, well, let's, uh, let's put the economist side of you to one side. You're also a football fan. I heard you admit before, you came on, before we came on air that you support Scunthorpe. Is that right? That's indeed true. How would you feel if Scunthorpe got bought up by Sheik or Russian oligarch? Well, I'd be thrilled, and I, I, I'd be staggered if there were, you could find many football fans who wouldn't be thrilled. I'd love to see Scunthorpe have ridiculous sums of money ploughed into them. And Even the Glazers? You'd be Ronaldo, happy about them coming in? Fine, let's have Ronaldo Loading up Kaka, the books with debt? Absolutely fine. If that's going to get Scunthorpe United to the final of the Champions League, I mean, that's, that's exactly what football's about, surely. It's the fantasy that your team might one day be at the very top of the tree, and uh, that, that hope which sustains not just me, but many football fans. I've got one more it. question. Just to, I know we're prolonging the football debate somewhat but um, is the tax increase going to make a difference because my understanding is that part of the reason why Real Madrid can do what they do is because the Spanish have an incredibly favourable tax regime for footballers as do to some extent the Italians and the reason the French and Germans don't get anywhere is because they don't have favourable tax regimes for footballers so they won't go there I th- well, I'm, not, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure the tax regime stays such a big role, but I think at the margin it's important. I mean, I think the other issue that, that comes to mind here is the, the exchange rate. I mean, certainly the fall in the exchange rate potentially hits the, the ability of clubs to attract foreigners. But bear in mind the Premier League's income, annual income, is something like 50 to 75% higher than any other league in Europe. And that dominance is sets, looks likely to continue, in my view. So even if at the margin they, they struggle to uh, dominate the talent pool quite as much they had in the last few seasons I don't think there's really much likelihood that this 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 ability to suck in talent from an abroad will will disappear entirely we'll leave that there you can read plenty more about the business of sport by our award-winning team at guardian.co.uk slash sport 
Now, from one kind of mutual association, football, to another, building societies. Because while it's mostly been the banks making the headlines during the downturn, many of Britain's most venerable building societies also find themselves in trouble. Last week, a rescue plan for the West Bromwich saved it from a taxpayer bailout, the fate which befell the Dunfermline back in March. It's believed that a quarter of Britain's mutual societies are expected to fall into the red this year. Jill, perhaps you can explain why. Well, building societies like the banks we've just been talking about have have encountered the same sort of problem. They lent money to people um, at the height of the market that they probably shouldn't have done. You know, the building societies that have fallen into difficulty so far indeed were trying to piggy bank onto the back of the riches they could see the banks were supposedly making in the likes of buy-to-let, commercial property, you know, all those things that, you know, commercial property's fallen 40% this year. Um, you know, buy-to-let, we, do we need to even discuss what's going on with buy-to-let? So those are the sorts of problems that have happened. At the same time, they're dealing with this extremely low interest rate environment. And the one thing about building societies is that you always wanted to put your money with them because you've got a nice solid return. And the fact is, right now, building societies are facing competition from the likes of National Savings, Northern Rock, all those buildings, you know, all those all those non-building societies that can now offer better rates than they can. So it's much harder and harder for them to attract you into them to put your money there. Phil, what, we, what Jill's describing there is kind of a building society managers making kind of a category error. They were formerly building societies, but they went around behaving like they were banks. Yeah, absolutely, they did. Um, and I think what, one of the problems is is that it leads um, people to say that the mutual idea is broken and um, because... Dunfermline and others um, just went off on a spree of buy, you know lending to commercial property, and as Jill has explained, that's gone through the floor. That um, that that means you know we shouldn't really care about our mutual sector. They're as stupid and idiotic and um, uh, uh, avaricious and greedy uh, as the next bank along the road. So why don't we just let them go to the wall as well? And I think that would be a great shame. I think we should have a thriving mutual sector, and I think the co-op probably shows the way. It's doing very well and has taken over. A couple of building societies as uh, <laughs> boot. Well, Stefan, that's the optimist case put by Phil. But isn't there a, a, another case you could make, which is that building societies are really an outdated model? Well, I mean, this is the kind of the perennial debate about the way in which the economy should be organised. Should we should we allow um, profit maximising institutions to dominate everything we do, or are there are there roles for other motives for motives which are I mean a mutual society essentially you're responsible to the people who are uh, lending you the money and and ideally uh, in a mutual society those people have some say over the way things should be organised. In practice, it turns out that the the profit maximising model seems to seems to amount to no no difference in the form of behaviour. I mean I think that's the point. There are problems with mutual society organizations such as difficulties in raising capital they you typically have a higher price the the supposed benefits in terms of better behavior don't seem to materialize and i think the thing is that whether it's whatever your motive the people who are successful in business certainly i see this in a business school the people who are successful are really the people who actually care most about their customers anyway regardless of what their objectives are regardless of the organizational structure so that in that sense whether it's a mutual society or a uh, a shareholder-owned organisation, I'm not sure that ends up making that much difference. Jill, you come in. Well, look, you know, we can all go back to the to, to the banks that have got in trouble and all their roots lie in the building society sector, don't they? I mean, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm agreeing with you, is that it's, it's, it, it's about the people at the top of the organisations. I was, uh, you know, y- you think about the people that run businesses and what drives them. The reality is that people running building societies were also encouraged to take these risks because they are also on performance-related pay, maybe albeit on a different scale. And actually, 
in a less transparent way. If you look at the annual reports of building societies, it's much less easy to see what their targets are. And yet they're still getting bonuses uh, for their performance. And of course, that's all linked to the types of profits that they're making. So it's about people running these organisations and me too and wanting to get greedy. But at the moment, building societies are very much back in fashion. People are saying, well, why did we ever demutualise all, all those H-boxes yeah, and all the rest of it? But, but you see, now we're getting the counter-arguments too, because if you look at the rescue package for West Brom last week, the fact is what the FSA has tried to devise is a sort of hybrid share issue so that it can in fact raise a shareholder run mutual well yes i mean it's it you know we're into kind of uncharted territory and at least in my understanding of this and um so you know they are sort of having to find a new way of getting money this whole point about how you raise money if you're a building society and it seems to me that the fsa want these new types of shares ppds's to be used by other societies to um to also mean that they don't have to be rescued by the taxpayer or to have to merge with each other because we're getting to a point where you know there are fewer and fewer big societies to come in and rescue the ones that are troubled underneath so you know we're we're back into a sort of shareholder type environment phil all this causes a lot what will cause a a lot of headaches for any regulator a few years from now because what you've been describing is building societies behaving like banks retail banks behaving like investment banks investment banks behaving like hedge funds so none of them are doing what they say on the tin so how's a regulator meant to regulate in all of that well it's it's very difficult i think they're going to set a whole lot of rules for everybody it'll be pretty much the same and i think one of the problems as the chief apologist around the table for building societies uh, i would uh, say that you know to a great extent, they were dragged into this against their will. There was cheap money around. Banks were totally unregulated and went after business. Building societies tried to stay out of it, couldn't, otherwise they got no business whatsoever, dipped into the market, um, got a few customers, then pulled out. Uh, and a few of them, in order to try and um, get some more money in, went into areas they really shouldn't have done. Now, of course, you can tell them now, don't do that ever again. Um, you're going to be boring businesses. And I think the, the boss of West Bromwich, who, who's taken over there, says basically this is going to be a really boring business from now on. Um, but, you know, Britain is a bit of a Ponzi scheme, you know, a bit of a get-rich-quick um, outfit. And I think we, we look to make money out of nothing. We, we look to make money out of property particularly, which is totally invented, you know, where we, where we assume a, a house is worth twice as much as it was two years ago and we take the money out and spend it. Um, and I don't think we can do that anymore. And I think we have to get back to um, a building society style culture where we all have to uh, see that we can't spend as much as we were. And uh, kind of financial to... austerity, is that what you're preaching? Uh, absolutely. OK, my thanks to the panel, Jill Trainer and Phil Inman from our business desk and Stephanie Shemansky from the Cass Business School. To give your feedback on anything you've heard, post a comment on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. The programme was produced by Ben Green, I'm Aditya Chakraborty, and that was The Business.